All right, everyone, welcome to Endurance Sports Nutrition with myself, Dr. Will O'Connor. All right, so what we want to get through today, a uh, little bit of introduction about myself, if you don't know who I am. So I've been involved in endurance sports for the last decade, and particularly sports science. So I started off uh, as a triathlete, a biochemist, and I thought, you know, one, uh, I'm probably not good enough to make this uh, training and racing thing um, my sole living, but I want to be involved in, in this world for the rest of my life. So what can I do? Uh, pretty much put off having a real job for as long as possible and just keep keep studying, keep figuring out more about the human body. And that's really what I've done here. Um, so I have a PhD. Uh, I've competed in Ironman, ultra marathons, um, like normal marathons, trail running. Uh, I also went away with Triathlon New Zealand. You can see Hamish Carter and Bevan Doherty there uh, to the world champs with um, taking care of the, the junior world champs team. So that's that's really me in a nutshell. I love, absolutely love uh, understanding the human body and how it goes. And the topic of my PhD was metabolic flexibility and endurance performance. So this is a, a topic close to my heart. I normally don't put it out there too much because, man, you know, uh, nutrition is a little bit like religion and people have their own belief systems. But uh, I just like science. So that's what we'll we'll get into here. With sports nutrition, you you my opinion is you want to keep it simple. All right, really what we're looking at is how do you fuel yourself for optimal performance from A to B. So that's the start line to the finish line. How are you able to, to ensure that you have energy for that entire duration? So we have three main macronutrients. That's carbs, proteins, and fats. Hopefully you already know what those are. But carbs are limited in the amount that we can store. And that's like, you know, your breads and your pastas and fruit. And then we have proteins, which is generally uh, animal forms. So any anything that comes from an animal is going to have some protein in it. And proteins are made up of amino acids. And these amino acids make the proteins, uh, which are the building blocks of our entire being. Right, so they make the enzymes that can uh, functionally utilize like everything that we do in our body. Uh, they also make, you know, trans. they use to transport things like oxygen around our body, and then obviously muscle. Uh, so that they used to make muscle and also skin and everything else. So that's proteins. We don't really use them for energy. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, and fats. So fats we know as oils um, and then like your animal fats. So butter and actual fat like we have on our body that you can get from, from animals. Carbohydrate. So carbohydrate is stored as glycogen in the muscles and in the liver. Depending on how big you are, we've got three to 500 grams. You get, I'm going to talk in calories here, hopefully that's all right, I can't really do the kilojoules conversion in my head, but we get, uh, we get four calories per gram of carbohydrate. So I mean, if, if you've got the max, kind of that 500 gram range, you've got 2,000 calories worth of energy stored within your muscle and liver. Now, the, the, the muscles aren't the only thing that uses carbohydrate. We also have cardiac tissue and the brain because the brain can't use fat. 
but it can use ketones. So when we have when we're talking about carbs, we're talking about a limited resource. We're talking about two thousand calories max, and that's why we need to be able to supplement with carbohydrate. Fat. Fat is stored in adipose tissue as triglycerides, and we can also have intramuscular triglycerides, which is uh, muscle uh, fat stored within the muscle, and it's a bit more readily available, uh, a bit faster to be broken down and utilized by our muscle cells. Fat is nine calories per gram, so we have four uh, for carbohydrate, we also have four for protein, and we have nine for fat. Now, Fat is, as you've probably seen in our obesity epidemic, unlimited in its storage ability. So carbohydrate is limited to our liver and our muscles. Uh, fat is, we can just generate new fat cells. Uh, we can't generate new carbohydrate cells because carbohydrate is stored within a cell in itself. So that's, that's fat, right? Protein, like I said, is the building block of, of the human system. So that's what we're able to use to build our enzymes and our functional and structural proteins. And we can utilize protein for energy, but not directly like we can for uh, fat and carbohydrate. We have particular processes that we can use for carbohydrate, glycolysis and fat, the, uh, the Krebs cycle or beta-oxidation uh, or the like uh, fatty acyl CoA system, um, whereas protein, yeah, we have to break it down into that initial uh, uh, acetyl CoA that feeds into into the TCA cycle. So we can also do all these other things with proteins where we convert them into carbohydrate as well. Um, it's super energy inefficient, like we expend a lot of energy trying to convert these these structural proteins into something that could be a little bit more useful. Um, we can convert them into ketones as well, but pretty much it's like a last resort because, you know, proteins, amino acids, they're making up the structural and functional components of the human system. So what we want to do is completely avoid utilizing any resources that are associated with amino acids or proteins because when we do use those, uh, we're starting to break down our actual like functional and structural tissue. And we're not designed to do that. All right, so who? Uh, who is going to be utilizing this information? Endurance athletes. Okay, so I'm going to target this at endurance athletes. I'm not targeting it at, uh, at weightlifters or team sport athletes. We're just looking at endurance athletes here. Male, female, young, old, focused on performance over one hour. I mean, yes, you could probably um, take a little bit of this information into your training if you're looking for like a 5K, 10K, but pretty much like I'd like to implement um, and explain a lot of this information for events that are going to take over an hour because that's where you need to utilize nutrition within the event. Um, low carb, high carb, vegan, any sport that's taking your endurance sport that's going to be over an hour is going to be able to utilize this information. All right, so when we have endurance exercise, typically this is this is the, the trajectory and the metabolic start and end points. We have the start, 
and we in this example we just we run right so let's say we run for two hours we're going to utilize carbohydrate within that two hours how much carbohydrate we utilize so that's stored glycogen we're going to assume that we haven't taken on board any exogenous carbohydrates that's our sports drink our gels our lollies and everything we're going to deplete that stored carbohydrate. I mean, we have stored in muscles and liver, and over time, we're going to, to start to burn some of that. Now, how much we burn and the rate at which we burn it is going to depend on a few different factors. It's going to depend on, one, how hard we're going. How hard we're going, and that's intensity relative to our threshold. And then two, how metabolically flexible we are so that is how well we are able to burn fat to make up our energy requirements because the higher the more fat we can burn the less carbohydrate we're going to burn so also a bit of a starting point is the other one so if we are chronic you know if we're a keto athlete or we're chronically low carb even if we're a bit overnight fasted maybe we trained in the evening before we're going to have less carbohydrate stores so there are metabolic and hormonal triggers and signals that are being sent to our system as a whole to slow carbohydrate utilization but in most terms for events lasting over two hours, if we're just talking about an event or a training session that is, you know, you're kind of zone two, zone three, below threshold, because it should be, uh, we are going to start with full glycogen stores. And if we didn't supplement at all, we would probably run out at around three to four hours. If we didn't take on board anything and we're operating anywhere from you know, 80 to 95%, and we weren't in particularly trained to slow our carbohydrate utilization rates. So when we do that, when we have ex expended all our stored carbohydrate, not all of it, but a majority of it, the brain rules the throne. And so the brain, remember I said earlier, utilizes carbohydrate as well as some cardiac tissue some other tissues but predominantly it's it's kind of the brain and the muscles the brain says that's mine shut it down and that is the process of bonking or hitting the wall blowing up uh, because you now can't maintain your intensity the energetic requirement from the muscle has been limited okay if you needed 100 units of energy per minute and you were getting 20% of that energy from carbohydrate, boom, the carbohydrate's gone, and you've just lost 20% of your energy capacity, output capacity, and so you've had to slow down, right? That's, that's part of bonking, hitting the wall. Now, as we get through an event, like two hours, three hours, four hours, a lot more factors start to come into play, how fatigued you are, how hard you went earlier to, um, you know, figure out how much carbohydrate has been contributing to your intensity. And sometimes that, um, that hitting the wall or bonking is a real dramatic fall off the cliff as opposed to a, I'm going to have to slow down a little bit. So here's what we can do. This is endurance sports nutrition. We can supplement. So 
rather than ending up like this, empty, we can end up half full. And that really, if we're looking at uh, training in particular, that's the ideal scenario. We don't want to be in a position where we are so metabolically taxed and fatigued that not only do we have to overcome the structural and um, hormonal damage that we've done within a training session, that we also need to overcome the metabolic and cellular stress of being completely carbohydrate depleted. There are points at which we would want to stimulate that a little bit, but pretty much, especially when we're looking at optimal performance as the outcome. So if you're doing, you know, a particular marathon, half Ironman, Ironman based training session, we want to we want to implement as we are going to on race day. So we want to ensure that we are optimally we're able to perform the session optimally, so we can get really good data, and we can figure out, you know, what what intensity and what outputs are we going to be able to maintain across the duration and distance that we've just completed. Uh, we also want to be able to recover so we can hit it again. And so we utilize sports nutrition. We utilize exogenous external carbohydrates because remember, we've only got so much stored in our muscle and liver and the brain rules the throne. So we want to continue to supplement, okay, that uh, we can continue to supplement the rate of carbohydrate utilization, internal carbohydrate utilization with external carbohydrate so that the actual glycogen that we've got, that initial store, is not used up as quickly. It's more slowly used up. And by that account, we can maybe go a little bit faster in the initial term, but we can definitely maintain our output for longer. So, you know, if, like I said before, if you're going to hit three, four hours, you're probably depleted and you're going to have to slow down, especially if you're operating that kind of 90 to 95% threshold intensity. Whereas if you're supplementing with carbohydrate, boom, you can, you can keep going. Depends on how well trained you are structurally and how well you've paced yourself across the, you know, various uh, inclines and declines then you're going to be able to go for, for hours and hours. Um, who knows how long, really? It's all a, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But that's the idea. So now we have uh, the intensities at which we use different fuel sources. Because while I'm very pro-low carb, I think there needs to be an understanding of where carbohydrate is especially useful and it is never completely uh, not utilized within our human system because our metabolic system is not like a switch. Okay, We can't turn the light off and turn the light on. We can't turn carbohydrate uh, oxidation off and, and then turn it back on and turn fat on and turn fat off. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's all really uh, operating in a continuum and it's just what is the most dominant fuel source that we're going to leverage at a given intensity. So if we look at this graph here, we have the, the crossover point here, which is where the intensity, the if you've ever heard of like a metabolic crossover or macronutrient crossover or 
something along those lines. It's the point at which carbohydrate becomes more the more dominant fuel source over fat. And this is this is kind of a, a typical outline where you have around that 90% threshold mark. Um, so you know you're you're cresting between upper zone two, lower zone three is where we start to enter into utilizing more carbohydrate than we are fat. Uh, and so if you have a look here, sorry, that should say easy steady. Um, and then when we get into tempo, fast, and sprint. Now, if we have a look at, um, sorry. So that's that's just like your typical endurance athlete. We're not really saying that that either way on any kind of diet. We're just saying like, yep, what, they're probably 60% carbs, 20% fat, 20% fr protein in terms of their caloric intake. That's that's just your standard diet, and this is what's been repeated time and time again in the literature. As we increase intensity from kind of 90% on, we lose um, the contribution of fat as a, as a fuel source. And where does that come from? So we have a few different sources as well. See, so this is uh, along the along the x-axis is percentage of maximal oxygen uptake, so VO, VO2. And it's just a measure of intensity, right? So we're starting at 25%, it's like walking, and then 85% of VO2 max is, yeah, that 90 to to 100% threshold kind of range. I'm um, talking about VO2 max here not lactate threshold, slightly different things. Uh, and then we've got um, calories per kg per minute, so just like our energetic uh, our energetic cost per minute, really, per, per muscle mass, because um, our fat mass isn't really contributing or able to utilize uh, energy or help us move forward. And that's why, you know, as endurance athletes, we want to be quite lean. Anyway, so we have plasma glucose. So that's, you know, something that uh, is either being released from the liver or something that we've in, uh, ingested. So let's, we're talking about sports drink, right? So had some had some sports drink. It's got some sugar in it. It's being released into our bloodstream. Then we've got plasma-free fatty acids. So that's uh, fats that have been released from our fat tissue. And that's just like... Uh, Fats that, like just like the glucose that I've taken in from my sports drink, it's a means of of transporting fat uh, around the body. So free fatty acids, we've got a bit of that, and plasma just meaning in the in the blood system. And then we have muscle triglycerides. That's the fat that's stored within our muscle. And then we have muscle glycogen. So that is the carbohydrates stored within our muscles. And you can see where, when we're looking at fat, around 65%, so that's like our, our bread and butter zone two training, that's where we're really getting a peak in terms of our fat oxidation rates. Again, this is in a pretty typical moderate carbohydrate intake, you know, 60%, 20% fat, 20% protein energy intake. And beyond that point, beyond that zone two, as we start to travel into zone three and above, we start to decrease uh, the release of fat from our adipose tissue and its utilization. And we kind of plateau the amount of muscle triglycerides, um, intramuscular triglycerides, 
purely for the fact that it's just starting, it's too slow. We need a faster energy source, and we have that through muscle glycogen and plasma glucose, so carbohydrate. Uh, so as we progress, we are going to rely more on these fuels. And this increase is particularly important here of the plasma glucose, because if you're not supplementing, that is coming from your liver, and your liver only has 100 grams. And this is the particular um, fuel source that is that is competing for the brain. So the more influence that plasma glucose has or is um, being contributing to your energy, without supplementation, the more uh, potential you have to to hit the wall, what bonk, blow up, slow down, because actually it's been shown that you can still have a relatively large amount of muscle glycogen, definitely more to continue your, your output, but it is plasma glucose that the brain is most concerned about because it doesn't really, for the sake of this, have the capacity to extract any of the stored carbohydrate within your muscle. It's relying just pretty much on what's in the in the liver and what you're going to bring in um, through through your mouth. All right, so then we have util utilizing fat. Okay, so unlike carbohydrate, fat doesn't run out. Just will go and go and go. So the more we can use fat and the more we can rely on it, the longer and faster we're going to be able to travel through time and space. Bike, run, swim, kayak, whatever we're doing, we can rely on fat, we're going to be able to do it pretty much until our mind or our muscles break down, but it won't be a form of energy or energy contributed fatigue. All right, so now we're looking at the fat adaptation. So remember that curve where I said it was over here, steady on your standard athlete? Now we're looking at a fat adapted athlete. This is where metabolic flexibility and the term and the principle starts to become important because fat adaptation is not just a low carbohydrate diet. Uh, it can be also fasted training or depletion training. Uh, it can be just any form in which carbohydrate is restricted. Uh, so yes, you can do that through diet, but you can also do that through training. So the goal here is to shift this, this crossover point to more like that 95%. So more zone three, upper zone three. Uh, depends on what zone systems you're using. But we want to get as high to that threshold point as we can by utilizing as little carbohydrate as we can. And so here that easy, steady tempo um, did I put a comparative chart? I did. Cool. So what we're looking here is that after after threshold, it's just carbohydrate. You need carbohydrate. You need to utilize it as fast as possible because you want to go as fast as possible and you're going above threshold. So you're not considering how long you're going to go for because it's not going to be hours and hours. It's going to be one hour, two hours, absolute max if you're operating around that like 97% half marathon intensity, half Ironman. Um, but it's a point at which we can we can really um, flirt with danger in terms of our carbohydrate utilization. But optimal speed, energetic, fast, 
utilization is the goal. So carbohydrates, the goal there. Under that, and that's where we're looking at, yeah, pretty much marathon, half Ironman, ultra marathon, all of that stuff is just like, let's just not use carbohydrates so we can avoid the risk of it becoming a factor later on. And so this is the, the inefficient versus efficient. And I guess I'm being a bit harsh saying that it's inefficient. Um, it's just less efficient, right? Because just because you are not fat adapted or, um, you know, on the far side of the curve of metabolic flexibility doesn't mean you are going to run into issues. Because if you pace yourself appropriately and supplement appropriately, then you will be able to get through your event at uh, optimal performance. But you are running a high risk of needing to hit your endurance nutrition, your carbohydrate supplementation protocol, spot on. Because if you miss if you miss one at any point, then that glycogen, that plasma glucose, has the potential to drop. And if it does, the brain's going to say, slow down, and now you're in arrears. And you have the potential to yeah, have to slow down and minimize and come back. Whereas when you're efficient and you're metabolically flexible and you remove carbohydrate from the equation, from that like zone three and below, then it's you can miss carbohydrate intake um, portions throughout your event. And it's not really going to have a huge implica implication to your overall performance. It's just going to mean that uh, you may later on need to overcome that or you might feel a little low and you're just, you still need to get the carbohydrate in. It's just not going to be as big of a factor. And if you did happen to just like completely lose all your nutrition on the bike or it all fell out of your pack or you forgot to pick it up or something, you can see if we're operating in that steady or tempo, if carbohydrate is removed from your from your metabolic equation, from the ability to contribute to your, your muscular contractions, you can see how much forward or like contractile properties or energetic utilization you'd lose in efficient. So whatever, you know, like 20, 30%. Whereas when you're inefficient, you essentially lose the capacity to continue to run. Right, you now you're now you're walking, uh, because you've you've lost you know 70, 40, 70, 50 plus percent of your of your energy um, contribution to to muscular contraction, and that's where where fat adaptation is is so important, and when we're looking at this, continuing with the metabolic flexibility term. If we have a look at this, and this could be the profile of a running race or a cycle race, or um, it could be an intensity profile, whatever it is, we've, we've called it energetic requirement. So say you're going up the hill, right, and you're, your heart rate's starting to, starting to go up, um, and you, you want to stay with the bunch or the pack or, or the other runner or whatever it is, and um, and so you, you, keep, you keep pushing on, you keep pushing into 90%, 95%. Um, you go into the red pretty quickly, and the red is is carbohydrate burning. So now you're starting to to burn all this carbohydrate, and 
then you're on the downhill, you know, so you, you, your heart, your heart rate's coming down. You're starting to recover a little bit. Um, especially in a bike race, no one's really trying to attack on the downhill. And then we're, and then we're back, we're back up, right? So we're back up and you're trying to stay with the bunch. You're just pushing a little bit over, you know, you're supposed to be zone two, one, one one fifty-five, but you're at one fifty-seven, and you're quickly burning a whole bunch of, of carbohydrate again. Have a look at the metabolic flexibility side. It's not until you're tipping the scale right at the top, right at that final push over the climb, that carbs start to become a factor and start to contribute. The other thing about metabolic flexibility is you're flexible. So as soon as that intensity is reduced, so you've gone from your 157 to back under 155, under that zone two, upper zone two limit, and you're back at 153, you're back very quickly able to compensate or utilize fat. So there's still going to be some carbohydrate contribution, but it's almost non-existent. You only needed it for that, that extra rate of energy uh, utilization, that extra muscle recruitment that was required to push over the top of the hill. And then we come down and you're recovering, so you're not even burning carbohydrate. So now we look at these two factors here, and we get to the final climb, the final part of the run or the race or the, the, the bunch ride, whatever it is, and and it's going to be hard because it always is. Um, it's hard either because you're fatigued or because the bunch is putting in a real effort um, or because your competitor is trying to drop you. And and now you're just you're going to have to use carbohydrate at some capacity because the most efficient muscle fibers you have are now pretty fatigued. And so now you're relying on less efficient muscle fibers. And those are going to utilize more carbohydrate than the super efficient ones that are trained uh, day in and day out. And so now you've preserved this whole time a metabolic flexible individual has mainly burnt fat, preserved carbohydrate to the maximum and has plenty left, left to give. So now it's just structural and mental that is going to get you through this last part. Whereas a metabolic inflexible athlete has utilized carbohydrate for about 50% of the time and now it's a roll of the dice if they fueled appropriately and if they have enough glycogen left to be able to get over that final climb because if they don't then they're gone they're out the back they can't they can't compete there's there's no there's no level at which they can just drastically turn on another fuel source to be able to contribute to the rate of energy energy utilization that is required to get over that final climb whereas metabolically flexible individual it's good. You've just taken it out of the equation. It's not that these, it's not that the energy requirements of either of these events, either of these two people, were any different across the whole thing. They're essentially, it's like uh, it's your it's your identical twin mirror image side by side the whole event, and it's not until the end where the metabolically inflexible person is is dicing with risk, as compared to the the metabolically flexible person who it's it's completely fine they they don't need to to worry about that it's more like heat and muscle fatigue that is going to be after that could potentially slow them down so what can we do uh besides going low carb uh because that's one of i guess the easiest ways is actually fasting or fasted training 
So we've got a few different means of being able to do that when we're talking about fasting. Like fasting is not eating and it's not eating for a period of time. So we can do overnight. So you just obviously don't eat from dinner through to after you've completed your exercise. And then we've got intermittent. So we've got eating on some days and we're going to just term intermittent at the moment as eating on some days and not others. And so I've put a note there, not advisable for athletes training more than five days a week. If you're training in five days, you could probably get away with having one day off eating, but it is going to significantly impact your ability to recover. So it would really depend on how your training has been structured and if the fasting part is still allowing a little bit of amino acids to allow for the muscular recovery. Um, and then you've got long training sessions. So you can just do fasted training where you, you essentially put yourself in a position where glycogen runs out and now you're being forced to, to adapt to burning fat to make up the, the level of energy, the rate of energy requirement to continue to run or ride or whatever. Uh, and so that's, yeah, Better for, for cycling than running because in running, when you lose a lot of muscle function, you lose a lot of quality and uh, speed and muscle recruitment. Whereas in cycling, because you don't have as nowhere near as much muscle damage, you can actually still maintain quite a reasonable output um, just because of, yeah, because of the muscle damage eccentric loading component. Uh, and so then you're like in running, if you if you're dropping from say four minute k's to five minute k's, you're still running in both of those. But if you are more of a six minute k athlete and you're dropping to then a walk, you're very much uh, creating a large difference between your VO two or your oxygen requirement intensity. Uh, and so your your it's yeah, what's happening there is a lot different than running and running slower when you're going from running to walking because now you're training two different um, yeah, two different modalities really. And then we have eating between 12 pm and 8 pm. so you got eight hours then you don't eat hours, um, 16 hours. so that's um, not advisable for athletes training in the morning um, just because, you actually I don't know why I've put that not advisable for athletes training in the morning oh right because not eating till 12 I just reposition your eating practices within that it's just that is what if you looked up 16 and 8 that's what it's going to tell you to do so if you're like subscribing to that kind of methodology of eating or fasting I'd recommend going like oh geez if we're going 8 going to test my maths here so, so like two is that i don't know eight nah it would be like eight or four p.m or, or something like that um it would be yeah working back that way uh just so that you can fast all the way from 4 p.m through to your morning session but then after your morning session you're fueling appropriately um and yeah and even trying to have your easy session in the evening if you're doing like a two a day just so that you weren't so depleted that you would end up doing like, say, a hard interval session 
without eating anything afterwards and then you're going to do a morning session the next morning without eating anything afterwards if they're like your easy zone two stuff you can definitely do it and you're you're like well trained enough that that's not going to be a large percentage of your overall training volume because otherwise you're not going to recover and recovery is the most important because that's where you're going to be able to get your adaptation from in the first place now we're into low carb right so that's fasting and fasting is going to do the same things as low carb it's going to present a metabolic and cellular environment when where carbohydrate is limited and you could just eat low carb as well so that allows you to get the best of both worlds in terms of limiting carbohydrate but also being able to uh to recover and ensure you're eating appropriate meals uh pre and post your training sessions so this is mine i haven't seen this anywhere else this is my recommendations of what i discovered during my phd to find and um, implement and force adaptation for optimal fat oxidation rates so i had two less than two grams per kg per day and then moderate and high now high this high is low for a lot of others like they'll go seven eight nine carbo load at 10 grams per kg per day that's like you know if you're if you're an 80 kg individual that's 800 grams of just pure carbohydrate let alone the the fat and protein you'd be getting in and if you've ever done that like i have you feel extremely bloated it can be yeah very hard to do but it can be effective. Um, so so low is less than two, and you've probably seen a lot lower than that, but I tested, what, 13 individuals across four weeks across two separate high and low carbohydrate diets, males and females, and I was able to get uh, maximal. The some individuals, myself included, one other guy, had two grams fat oxidation per minute which is the highest recorded in scientific literature off of less just like two grams per kg per day and um, so we're not talking about ketosis here we're talking about low carbohydrate and so that would be um if you weighed 75 kgs low carbide diet would be considered anything 150 grams per day or less and that's not to say you can go lower than that you can but I was able to get away with like quite a lot of intensity with a, a, a low of around of that one to two grams per kg uh, per day. And then uh, where I was saying that that high carb intake carbo loading can work is these glycogen supercompensation protocols. So remember I said glycogen is really important. In order for you to perform optimally because regardless of what intensity you're doing the energy systems are a continuum and they'll they'll be utilized at whatever exercise intensity you're doing it's just what percentage is being being utilized at any given time and as you get through something like an ironman ultra marathon these ultra events when you start progressing depends on your training intensity six plus hours you start to fatigue those those normally um really highly efficient muscles that just rely on like 99 percent 
uh, fat as the predominant fuel source for muscular contraction. They fatigue, so you need to compensate that that muscular contraction, that force output that was being utilized by these um, you know really efficient muscle fibers, and use some less efficient ones. And that's why you get such a horrendous um, muscle soreness after doing these ultra events because you you're you're really fatiguing and damaging muscles that were previously not utilized. And so so we need to ensure that carbohydrate glycogen storage is at this utmost maximum. And we can actually get more than what we normally would if we use a supercompensation protocol. So that's where you go, this is what I do, works generally pretty well, is you go use like a night like a 10-day practice. So you go five days, just super low. Just, yeah, I've said two grams per kg per day. Um, and I definitely recommend that if you are like not adept at doing any fasting or low carb because the the adaptation will be will be severe and you'll um, really feel super flat. Whereas if you're you're pretty adept and you do a bit of fasted training and you've done long rides or long runs without um, nutrition and, and been all right, uh, you can go as low as possible. And then uh, day six, so it's actually in the evening of day six. Uh, I would have a little bit of carbs, and then day seven and eight, I would I would go like full on, trying to hit pretty much as as much as possible. Probably for me, I I aim for that like seven grams per kg per day. Day nine, just before the race, I pull it back so that I don't get that bloated feeling, but I do get that um that maximal supercompensation of glycogen, and then then we've got race day. It also just means that I'm not like yeah, overeating the day before the event, which sometimes again can has me feeling a bit bloated and can sometimes contribute to just burning carbohydrate a bit faster rate as you would if you just just pulled back slightly around that five, that moderate carbohydrate intake. And so when should I take carbohydrate uh, when we're talking about uh, a session, a training session or or a race and it uh, it'll depend on, yeah, if it's a race, a training session or training simulation session where like uh, optimal performance is required within the session. But less than an hour, you just go no carbs. Don't even worry about it. One to two hours, so easy. And then when I've got moderate and high, so I've gone forty grams per hour or none for one to two hours because like, yeah depends where you're coming from if you're really trying to push the adaptation curve and like two hour like a two hour run for you is is like half of what you're capable of or it's like a midweek long run compared to your weekend long run or for a two hour ride it's like yeah I do four out two four hour rides in the weekend none is fine whereas if two hours is like one of your longest efforts it's better to take some carbohydrates on board. Just 40 grams, just like that's like a couple of gels. Take one at an hour, one at 90 minutes, and you should be good throughout. You just you're just minimizing the potential to over um, fatigue or overstress your cellular system, um, and like potentially just like just um, to degrade the quality of your workout. Um, and then when we get into high intensity, if you're going for one to two hours, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Uh, what the goal is, the goal is clearly high intensity. So just get sixty to ninety grams. Ninety grams being like the very upper end. Um, and same when you're going over two hours or more. 
Like we got to remember we're training to ensure that we are able to perform optimally on race day. So, so really stressing yourself so hard that you're trying to do like a, a two and a half hour run without even a gel or, or a banana or anything. It's like, why are you inducing that much stress where it doesn't contribute to or affect your metabolic flexibility in any way because um, insulin's not affected. It's just merely absorbed immediately by uh, your muscle cells and there's a different type of uh, glucose um, transporter. It's it's not um, insulin stimulated. It's contractually stimulated. So it's almost just like pouring water straight out a, a plug hole. It's it's fine it won't it won't affect you so what should we use we're getting on here a bit so i'll i'll push through um because we i just want to kind of break down what are we able to eat during our event um and so don't worry about anything more than 60 grams an hour unless you're an elite or a professional so like if you're if you're getting under 120 for a half marathon um, that's the only time, you know, 230, 240, um, for a marathon, maybe around like, yeah, that four hours, even maybe four and a half hours for a half Ironman. Uh, those are the only times where I'd really push over 60 grams an hour. So when you're real, it's, it's because you're able to sustain such a high rate of energy utilization um for such a prolonged period of time that otherwise uh uh someone under those uh performance levels is actually operating at a less a lesser intensity and can contribute more fat oxidation to the energy requirement so to risk uh trying to ingest greater than 60 grams per hour is, is it's just too much of a risk um, and so when you're doing that, you can use single transportable, um, carbohydrates, but I would recommend multiple transportable carbohydrates. Uh, and so what multiple transportable carbohydrates are is really just adding fructose into the equation. Uh, fructose is, it filters into the, the glycolysis and um, glycolytic, uh, metabolic pathway, just a step down from glucose. It's used exactly the same. Uh, it's just that it uses a different transporter in our um, digestional tract. Uh, and so it is, it just means that you can have, if you had a, what's generally recommended is a two to one ratio. So let's say if you had 60 grams, you had 40 grams of glucose and then or maltodextrin or um, dextrose or um, yeah, well, sucrose, some, there's going to be different names that float around. Don't worry about them too much. It's fructose is really the one that you're worried about. Um, and so if you had yeah, 40 grams of of like a glucose and then you had uh, 20 grams of fructose, it means that would be absorbed faster and through two separate channels than if you just took 60 grams of glucose, which would need to use that one channel. And if it slows or it creates a bottleneck, then it'll start to alter the um, osmolarity, uh, which is the water transport. And so if you've ever, you know, just not got your nutrition right, you've 
eaten something silly like right beforehand um then you get bloated you know and then you get you get the the runner's trots uh or maybe even they come you have to you're forced to throw up or something like that and and that's why because you you've just messed up the the whole concentration system uh and absorption within your your gi tract and so water's then drawn in to try and dilute the concentration and so if you can get away with um yeah 60 grams multiple transportable and you're doing a low carbohydrate um or metabolically flexible inducing training practices like low carb or, or fasting or keto or whatever um you're just you're starting to minimize your risk of of hitting the wall or ill um performance uh because we we want to maximize our potential especially within the neuro endurance nutrition thing as we start to get into these ultra events we just want to make sure we've eliminated the potential for um something bad to happen and maximize our potential for something good to happen uh, and so we can see these it's just on the ingredients maltodextrin is just a long chain glucose uh, so it's just a whole bunch of glucose molecules joined together um uh, dextrose is just the inverted form it's like a left and right hand form of glucose so it just looks a little different and then glucose is obviously fine sucrose is glucose and fructose joined together uh, and then fructose by itself is just fructose so what we're looking at really is the total carbs what have we got um have what have we got multiple transportable and you know always just double check caffeine because man that can for some people they can really influence uh that concentration um absorption profile within the gut so just double check you're not getting in too much caffeine when you don't need it uh so i utilize um my my drip feed method so the best case scenario would be if you just had like a glucose line connected to your vein and it just continuously drip fed um like a a, a few milligrams every every few seconds so that you absolutely optimize uh your your blood glucose profile but that's we can't do that it's it's, it's not appropriate i think it might even be illegal but the next step would be then sipping, right? Sipping on uh, a sports drink so that you were getting small bolus of glucose, carbohydrate every few minutes. And then that means that our ingest, in, uh, digestive tract can easily just uh, suck that straight up into the bloodstream and supply the muscles and brain, and there's no issues. For me, I don't... I like to have my hydration and my nutrition separate because I don't want thirst to influence how quickly I'm taking on board nutrition and I don't want hunger to influence how much I'm taking on fluid because both can be super influential on each other, especially on hot or cold days. So so we can only handle a limited amount of carbohydrates. So the drip feed method avoids something like eating a slice of pizza at 60 minutes, eating nothing and then taking three gels, you know? Uh, it's where you're inducing like such a large bolus that your digestive tract is really overwhelmed and then underwhelmed uh, for a prolonged period of time. We want to ensure that we're just providing a small um, hand, 
like amount bolus of carbohydrate that our digestive tract can easily handle and absorb to not influence uh any like uh any of the concentration or osmolarity changes um that could potentially upset our our gut and so 10 to 20 minutes is going to be the best case to take on about that 20 grams 15 grams um it depends if you go in 10 20 minutes uh this is what i use for ultra marathons um no there's no scientific reason really for utilizing snickers other than i really like them and i don't use these particular gels i actually mainly use high five gels um i find that they just they work really well for me whatever works well for you go for it but um i use a gel which is around uh 20 to 25 grams then i have a snickers which is around 10 15 grams carbohydrate it also has a small amount of protein and fat i didn't really get into the absorption profiles for protein and fat essentially they're non-existent so unless you're going like really really slow so you know you're doing like a 36 hour ultra marathon you may want to um you may want to start to implement or ingest some fat um probably more like medium chain um try just triglycerides like coconut oils and things that are a bit faster absorbed because they don't use the same fat transporters uh within the muscle anyway just a little bit more so for me for satiation like when i'm running eight nine ten hours i do want it to kind of feel like i have something in my gut um and that my my um digestive digestive system is working slightly throughout the day so that's why I just use a little Snickers or Mars bar or like Moro bar, just a little chocolate bar, the, the mini ones. And then um, I go into a gel again. And then I'll um, later on, maybe around hour five or six, I'll have an energy drink and that'll just replace one of the gels. Um, and so that's just what I do. Every, I've done it for years now. Um, other people have implemented it in a really effective manner. Um, so you can play with it a little bit, but really I just try and I have it on my watch, eat, eat every 20 minutes and I just go. Um, it's not really an enjoyment factor. It is a, a fueling factor. Um, so just to finish off, I'll touch on a little bit of just hydration, drink to thirst. I mean, there's a lot of research now that shows that um, drinking to thirst is going to be the most effective way to prevent uh dehydration or excessive dehydration the only the only caveat i'd say to that is when you are doing ultra marathons and it's a hot day and you get five hours in you have a range of um, feelings thoughts and emotions traveling through your body and it is worth still having an alert on your watch uh, or written on your hand to continue to drink because sometimes you can get like what happened to me earlier this year is you can get so within your own head focusing on the various plethora of thoughts traveling through your mind that you forget to drink. So initially it's it's quite easy, but when you start to um, get hours and hours into these events, yes, drinking can become a very distant afterthought. So just if you have a reminder to drink, you will drink to thirst. You're not forcing yourself to drink, but you are reminding yourself that you need to assess your thirst. And that is it. I uh, hope that was super helpful. And if you have any more questions from 
from this. Uh, make sure you check out my website because I've always got more things like this going on, um, live Q&As, different blogs and uh, webinars and um, also on my social media. Just hit me up and we can, yeah, get in touch. If you'd like to get some coaching from with me or you'd like a like a mentorship through um, through your coaching business to help your athletes, if you'd like to invite me to come speak to your coaching team, club or whatever, just reach out and we can set that up. I can facilitate all of that. So happy training. Till next time. Enjoy.